If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I am so excited to be talking with Brian Crimmins and Nathan Chappelle, two brilliant minds in the nonprofit space, respectively. And together, I mean, just wow. Wow. Welcome to the show, Brian and Nathan. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Great to be here, Amy. Our pleasure. Let me give you a little intro to these gentlemen, and we'll start with Nathan. As a thought leader, public speaker, author, and inventor, Nathan is one of the world's foremost experts on the intersection between artificial intelligence and philanthropy. Nathan serves as Senior Vice President of Donor Search AI, where he leads artificial intelligence deployments for some of the nation's largest nonprofit organizations. Nathan is a member of the Forbes Technology Council and holds a master's in nonprofit administration from the University of Notre Dame. Go Fighting Irish! an MBA from the University of Redlands, a certificate in international economics from the University of Cambridge, and a certificate in artificial intelligence from MIT. Brian is a global leader in social impact, a popular public speaker with the world's foremost speaking agency, the Washington Speakers Bureau, and CEO of Changing Our World through service lines that include strategic planning, fundraising, corporate social responsibility, research and analytics, and communication, changing our world, raises billions in dollars for the support of client causes, and counseling leading companies and brands to design and implement strategic corporate responsibility programs that deliver social impact while driving business strategy. Together, they, along with Michael Ashley, are co-authors of The Generosity Crisis, the case for radical connection to solve humanity's greatest challenge. The generosity crisis is a thought-provoking exploration in the generosity decline in the U.S. and the impact it has on nonprofit organizations, individuals, and communities. Through their insightful analysis, Brian and Nathan present a very compelling case for adopting a radical connection approach, which emphasizes building lasting connections rather than transactional interactions as a means of reversing this really alarming trend. So gentlemen, again, I thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Let's just jump into the first question. While giving in the U.S. continues to increase year over year, the number of U.S. households giving has reached an all-time low. Talk to us about the reality of giving in the U.S. and what you see as the cause or causes for this decline in household giving. You want to start? I got the nod. I'll I'll go ahead and just jump in. It's a great question to start us out because I think it's something that has been a little confusing for our industry. Brian and I both been in the nonprofit industry for a long time and like most followed the results of the Giving the USA report. And most years while I was, you know, a fundraising professional or or consulting, you get the report and there would be high fives in the the hallway that, you know, giving hit an all time high, giving was resilient, giving us two point one percent of the GDP and 
probably the more the economic background that I have, the macroeconomic side of like, well, you know, that's true. It's remaining 2.1% of the GDP. But at the same time, giving USA, what they do is they take out what's considered mega gifts from their report. This last year, mega gift was construed as 350 million or more. So they take out this pool of money every year to normalize their data. What that's done is actually made giving look like it's very healthy and continuing to increase. But when you read the footnotes of the Giving USA report, you realize that who's making that giving, the mix of who's making that giving is very different. So the long story short is that giving is resilient in total gross terms that but continues to stay on par with the GDP at about 2.1%. But the average American is essentially, there's been a pretty significant decrease, a 16% decrease in the percentage of American households that give to charity over that period of time. And so that's, that's kind of the reality where we're at. We've had this very, fairly steep decline in the last, well, 30 to 40 years in the percentage of households that give. And then Brian and I, we share in the book that any business that has a downward trajectory that year over year continues to look worse and a downward slope ends somewhere and it doesn't end well. And so for us, when we drew that straight line of this decrease in giving, we realized that giving as we know it today to traditional nonprofits ends in 49 years. And so I guess it's a, a bummer way to start out a podcast, okay, uh, the, end of, the end of traditional philanthropy, but it's also the reason why we wrote the book. And, and Tammy, just to add on to that too, just to back up a second and just put things in context. One of the things we do in the very beginning of the book as well is paint a picture of what would happen if the not-for-profit community isn't healthy, you know, in, if giving isn't as robust as, as it has been, historically speaking. And recently, Darren Walker, the head of the Ford Foundation, has a great quote that he put out there that says, we can't solve problems in this country without a healthy and vibrant not-for-profit sector. And so Nathan hit the numbers and how important they are when we lifted under the hood to find out what was happening. And that's sort of exhibit A. <laughs> exhibit B is, well, what the heck is going to happen if our sector, which is the backbone of so much of what happens in our society, that one of the main revenue sources continues, as Nathan said, on this downward trajectory, it doesn't end well. And I know, Tammy, you asked about the reasons why, obviously, that's an entire podcast on its own. But in kind of bulk terms, there are things that we really, we spent a majority of our time preparing for the book, investigating the reasons why. And we kind of categorize them in two different things. On one side, are, there are things that nonprofits have done to themselves by making giving, you know, really moving the needle. So to make giving so much more transactional and, and not, well, not prioritizing things like retention and we could get into later. And then there are things in the other bucket that have been done to them. I mean, there's things like the crowding out effect and decrease in religious participation and government intervention. So there's both sides. It's kind of this perfect storm of the confluence of lots of factors, probably 30, 40 different factors coming together that have allowed the average American to just opt out. And they've continued to opt out year over year and different ways to deal with the crisis. Our view of dealing with the crisis was let's ring the bell. Let's get people to talk about it because I don't think any of us want to envision a future or society that's less generous than the one that we have today. Absolutely. I mean, it's a kind of a scary proposition if you really think about it. In the generosity crisis, you write about the findings from the 2022 Edelman Trust Barometer, you know, the annual trust survey with more than 36,000 respondents from 28 countries. School us a little bit on those findings as it relates to the perceptions of nonprofit trustworthiness and the correlation that has on generosity. I mean, it's certainly that trust has to be one of those 40 influencers sure. in the decrease in generosity. Yeah. And you nailed it. I mean, the, we've often said, Nathan and I and others have said it to us, trust is, in a sense, the currency that which the not-for-profit sector is on and it really prides itself on and when it's going really well that's a big factor well we have a declining trust in our society you know we have we have declining happiness in our society and now back specifically to the edelman report it just came out i think this week or maybe last the 23 version of that report and what it did is it continued the findings and the points that we make in the oh. book by that i mean the companies in the last three years have gone up 19 points on their ethical score, the two main axes is ethical and then the competency. They've always been companies. They've always had that edge, if you will, over not-for-profits on the competency. They have skyrocketed 
in the ethical point of view from consumers or everyday people like ourselves. And they've done that intentionally, which is something we talk about in the book. They have positioned themselves to have shared values with us, to, to have or to promote or to talk about the partnerships they have with not-for-profits, the impact they have in society. They quickly realized a few years ago, in order for them to be more relevant, in order for them to sell more products, this was the direction they had to go. By the way, we applaud them, for most of them who are doing it the right way and doing that. Now, there absolutely are others who are doing it maybe with this only intention of selling more products versus actually having an impact. But the ones that are getting it right have, in our opinion, and we talk about this a lot in the book, have added to the list of that perfect storm Nathan was talking about of now the confusion comes in. The competition for connection, which we talk a lot about in the book, is well at play. I mean, we were last week in Washington, D.C., talking to a bunch of chief development officers, and one of them said, I think we're getting to a point where individuals look at impact and don't care where it comes from. Meaning if a corporation can solve some of the problems we have, well, then so be it. Or versus a nonprofit. But for those of us who've come up in the not-for-profit community, that's a wake-up call a bit that the corporations, the brands, the companies have taken our playbook on mission, shared values. And again, I'm hoping for the better, but certainly it has made it such that you can buy products from companies now and feel really good about it just the same way you'd give to a nonprofit 15, 20 years ago. And the answer lies within the data, honestly, because this trust is, again, a factor, the differential between trust and competency. So corporations have moved the needle in peering or being more ethical, and they've done that extremely well over periods of years. But that also means that nonprofits could move the needle to become more competent, right? So it's just the opposite end. It's like in competency and things like trust and accountability and transparency and inclusion, competency should be the easier needle to move, I think, in some ways than appearing to be more ethical. But at the end of the day, that's really the wake up call because nonprofits are still seen as more ethical than for-profit corporations, but have not moved the needle at all in the area of competency. And to me, that it feels like the low-hanging fruit, but it does require a different commitment for a nonprofit to really double down on what does competency mean and how people portray us. Because if we look at the 51% of Americans that don't give, mainly they don't give because they don't feel that their money is going to go to where the organization says it's going to, or they don't feel like there's transparency and reporting. If they make a gift, will they ever hear back? A lot of those factors, a lot of those factors are fairly easy to address. Yeah. I can't help but think that the problem is intertwined with the starvation cycle, right? We don't have the infrastructure to accurately and consistently measure right. outcomes. We don't put the resources into marketing to share the true impact that we have. We dance with our boards around mission impact, pushing the needle on aspirational goals, and really having, in Jim Collins' good to great terms, truly big, hairy, audacious visions for our community and playing it safe. And it's yeah. really to our detriment, I think. I was interviewed this week by a, a journal. I won't say which one, but they're writing an article on the importance of data in the nonprofit sector. And the question was something like, well, what if a small nonprofit can't afford, say, $5,000 a year to, to buy or enrich their data? And honestly, my answer is, and they shouldn't be in business. Because the world that we live in today, to compete in the world that we live in today, and I think that's where nonprofits, to your point, have not been able to help themselves get out of this idea like R&D in the for-profit sector. The reason why they've been able to move the needle in ethics is they've spent a lot of money in R&D. And what do consumers view ethics are? What would move the needle the most? Nonprofit, like R&D is, you know, kind of the equivalent of like a four-letter word because it innovation equals risk. And we have to get out of that mindset and really invest in not just what we're doing today, but where we're going in the future, because the world is fundamentally shifted. Business is much more competitive. And to Brian's point, we're not competing with nonprofits. Nonprofits are competing as much with for-profits as they are with nonprofits at this point. Your point is well taken. Our communities just want to see results. They just want right. to see problems solved. And who cares who solves them? So if we're not careful, we really will become irrelevant. Mm. And Tammy, if I could piggyback on that and the comment you made earlier, you made it in a small context, but I want to pull it out. The boards, the boards of these of our not-for-profit are critical to hear this conversation, to not only hear this, but understand it. And, and to Nathan's point, 
they do understand it. I know they do because in their for-profit jobs, they're doing it. Right. Somehow they leave that thinking sometimes too often on the sidelines when they come to their not-for-profit board meetings. We need to have this conversation at that level for change to really take hold. Yeah, I, we need to amplify that message for certain. And I really think board members would welcome that. To your point, they have that same philosophy and mindset in their own businesses, whether they are entrepreneurs and business owners or they are executives in larger companies. And yet they're, I think it goes back to like the perception of nonprofits. Right. Like they're these great little organizations trying to make a difference, like slogging along. And oftentimes we don't invest in adequate salaries to truly right. attract the best and brightest. And then sometimes we do have the best and brightest on our staffs. And we sometimes, with our best intentions to contribute to make a difference as a board member, we minimize the right. expertise on staff because we think being a board member means I have to have all the answers. Yeah. 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 It's really tricky. And actually, I heard last week from a fairly large consulting firm that, you know, I work in artificial intelligence, my kind of day-to-day -day job, and the request for AI for nonprofits is not coming from the nonprofit. It's coming from the board because to that point is those board members are working in corporations or leading corporations that have understood that the world is much more nuanced and that AI is not a fad. And so it's been interesting to see how boards are really kind of driving that change as well within the organizations. It's a wonderful point. And, you know, I think that for some nonprofits who really haven't delved into artificial intelligence, right? It's like, oh, one more thing. I don't know anything about this. Oh, let me, let me just put my head in the sand and see if this thing really sticks. So yeah. maybe on the surface, it would seem that radical connection, which really speaks to like human to human, right? Right personal relationships, radical connection, and artificial intelligence, it would seem on the surface that they're in opposition. And we know that that could not be further from the truth. So school us a little bit and our listeners about how they work hand in hand to move the needle. Right. Tammy, when we were getting to this aha for us of the book, which ultimately became Radical Connection, we realized, and I loved how you said it, it is, it's people, it's people to people, it's, it's real authentic relationships. We felt we needed a different name or term for it, hence why we came up with Radical Connection because of the world we live in. And a lot of the things we've already touched on, the association or even connection, we just didn't feel hit what we were trying to explain. We had to go beyond that, hence the Radical Connection. And so we actually in the book create a little bit of a framework, which looks at what we call association and affiliation. And it things like surface level, you know, an organization a little bit, you mentioned it maybe in passing, et cetera, to then the radical connection, which is where one of the things I love saying it's when you have it, it's I know you and you know me. There's a two-way street between you and the organization, you and the leaders of the organization. I love Nathan said yesterday or two days ago in a presentation we were giving, radical connection is the type of thing that when you're at a social event, you're talking about the organization, you're smiling, you want to explain it to other people. It's, it is that deep visceral connection, but it, you can only get there when you have that, as like we said, that two-way street. And so that became the framework, which to your exact point, Tammy, is so well supported with data and AI and machine learning, which I'll let Nathan dive into some more. Yeah. I mean, so just to flip over onto the AI side, one is AI is this ability to really understand really complex, you know, using tons and tons of data to like understand the nuances of things. And so I've been working in this field since 2017. And when we've loaded several billions of dollars in transactions, so a thousand data points per person, millions of times, we know more about why people give than ever before. And by the way, they don't give because they're wealthy. And our very first data science project was wealth is less than 10% correlation to whether someone actually makes a gift. And that's a big revelation for our industry because our industry is for 40 years or so prioritized. Well, my best prospects are the ones that are wealthy and therefore I'm going to try to convince them to give at any cost. At a certain point, there'll be a breaking point. Either they'll break or I'll break. And that's kind of how fundraising has been connected for a long time. AI has this ability to really understand and essentially measure connection. And so the type of AI that we've developed or I've worked in since 2017, all it removes wealth from the entire equation and it measures Brian's connection to an organization based on 
things like, is he volunteering or is he making gifts or is he opening emails on certain days of the week? If he goes to the symphony, how often does he go and how far is he willing to drive? Does he go only on weekends or does he go during the day? If you're in a university, it's how many sweatshirts in the bookstore have the school logo on it that you're wearing. And so AI, to be honest, is, you know, we struggle with this a lot in the book. The only scalable solution to reverse a generosity crisis, because the only other alternative that was not very practical was, well, tell people to go back to church because no matter what religion you belong to, if you participate in some sort of organized religion, you're twice as likely to give and you give twice as much. But we knew from day one, that was not going to be a popular message to, to go tell people to go find their soul. At the end of the day, AI is measured on the axis of precision of personalization and using AI to be personalized and also to be very precise that it's the entire world is not your oyster. Not every donor is a potential donor to you. Not every person in your community. It's really using the technology like the corporate sector works and Brian shares this analogy. Nike is no longer trying to sell shoes to everyone in the world. They understand their demographic and their persona of their buyer so well, all of their effort is targeted to that person versus the spray and pray, which we still see a lot of in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, I think there has been an awareness, a rising awareness that it's not just about, you know, like when I first began my career, it was like, let's just, let's just get to know Oprah. Uh, right. All right. Well, oh, do you yes. know Oprah? Oh. Like, can yeah. you make an introduction? Yeah. And yeah. the new Oprah, of course, is McKinsey Scott. Right. And in every community, there's like the person. Right. And I think that it is that sense that we just need to know people who have a great amount of wealth. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the scarcity mindset. There are a few with a lot and the others, like that's kind of nice. Like, right. And that's what we're seeing in the Giving USA and the fundraising effectiveness data, right? We've right. been spending so much attention on the larger donors and hence we retain a bigger percentage of them. And those donors at the smaller gift values are the ones that are rapidly hemorrhaging from our donor files. Yes. To reference Tamsin Webster and the red thread, like if there's a thread or a common thread that we can pull throughout all of that is that there is a pervasive scarcity mindset. Yes. And you've said it in the book that so many of us believe we're competing for dollars and you say, no, we're competing for connection. And not only is artificial intelligence one of the ways that we can really assess connection, that those people with the deepest connection could kind of rise on our radar, right? Because there's just not right. enough time. We're not staffed, and nor could we do this hand-to-hand, one-by-one, sorting through, looking for the needle in a haystack. One of the other things that we've begun to recognize is, regardless of gift value, Length of giving, loyalty right. is one of the most important things that we can not only measure, but also recognize and curate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And just real quick on that point, it's interesting because AI is able to pick up on really small nuances of giving patterns, essentially. We call them giving streaks because if a person is giving more frequently, either more dollars or less dollars, but in a shorter period of time, that's different than giving more episodically and being able to track that essentially in real time. And essentially the idea is that there's really no such thing as donors or prospects. And this is where it's like hard to get our mind around, but there are people that have a degree of affiliation to your organization, regardless if they give or not, the fact that they gave doesn't mean that they're not nearly as loyal as someone who cares about you deeply and shares about you with all their friends and neighbors. So this idea of like getting away from like the thing that attributes people as donors because they make gifts versus there are people that have a degree of connection to your organization and their ability to either lean in or pull back from your organization every day. They might open up emails or they might share something or they might make a gift or they might volunteer. I think we in our industry have pigeonholed people into like groups and in large segments and versus say, look, every person is an N of one, like how they do clinical trials. Every person is an N of one that every treatment will be unique to that individual based on their own DNA and their genotype. And we really pulled the lessons from this idea of precision medicine. And we talk about this idea of precision philanthropy, 
that treat every single person, and you can now because of the technology and data that's available, and measure their connection to you. And then to your point of like finding the things that people really resonate with to the point that they will be lifelong donors. Because this is the other, I think, big takeaway on this is that when we try to acquire donors at any cost, and this is a majority of my career, acquire a donor at any cost, often you lose money on a per donor basis, but in aggregate, you make enough people stay with you that it kind of pencils out. The reality is that a person who stays with you, a more loyal donor, which is a better donor, has 15 times lifetime value than a single donor that you're just trying to acquire. So it's not about more donors, it's about better donors. And it's about finding people based on their connection and their relationship to you, and then fostering that relationship. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds, so obviously I think Bloomerang's been a, a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Someone asked us the other day, they're like, well, this sounds like good old fashioned major gift work. And because as a major gift officer, this is what you do. You build relationships and you, you get to know them and they feel like they're part of your organization and they're partnering with you. And it is true, but you have to be able to do that at scale. You can't hire 200 gift officers to max out your pipeline. You have to use technology to then help you do that scale much more efficiently. Yes. And I just led a two day course with an AFP chapter. It was the AFP Fundamentals of Fundraising course. These were fundraising professionals who've been working in the field for less than four years. Mm. And over and over, I heard the question like, but there are some donors who just won't call me back. Or I say, I want to come out and visit with them and share the impact of their giving. And they say, oh, no, no, don't spend your time on me. Spend your time on someone else. I'm going to keep giving. Thank you very much. And so what I'm hearing is that you know, this radical connection and using technology like artificial intelligence, it gives us insights with donors who maybe we don't have a face-to-face, person-to-person deep relationship with, but we can still understand their motivations, their interests, right. their the shared values between us and them through the use of this technology. It's, again, to your point, how we can scale radical connection. Name of the game. Yeah. I would just add on to that too. When you think about what we're talking about now is a little bit of the here and the now, how to use it. Fast forward five years, never mind the technology will continue to improve. How not-for-profits are able to then simultaneously look at patterns of who ends up becoming one of their top donors. What were their attributes at 25, 35, 45 years of age? My point is you're going to be able to start to see who's coming into your stream if you're a hospital or a school or that are showing attributes showing early signs of radical connection that will lead you to believe these could be one of your long-term supporters. And I think that is freeing the ability to be able to begin to think about that. Because when you start, as Nathan said, when you start thinking of when that starts to become the way we frame up ways of engaging, that's entirely different than, as you said earlier, and I'm right there with you for 20 something years, I always went through the lens of wealth and then tried to figure it out. This is completely different. And I know that when I was uh, fundraising practitioner and working with major donors and mega donors, when they allowed you the opportunity to get to know them, then you could serve up the engagement, the donor journey, the experiences in the way that you knew exactly what they wanted to know, what they cared about, and you could serve that up. And it got to the point where literally it's like, Tammy, you just get me, right? And and again, that's what we're aiming for. But to your earlier point, we just can't scale it without the technology. Speak to our listeners who are thinking to themselves right now, all right, I'm sold. 
I want radical connection. I am willing to step into this world of behavioral modeling and artificial intelligence. How do I begin? I don't want to speak for Brian because he'll add some here too. You don't need AI to develop radical connection. It will, for especially for organizations that are larger and need to take it to scale, then they absolutely need it. But honestly, radical connection is just one of those things is first, I think recognizing that our ability to connect with individuals is, is not infinite, it's finite. And when we put ourselves in that lens in the eyes of our donors, they're receiving 333 emails a day. They're seeing five to 7,000 ad images a day. You have to first like break through all that. But I think it really comes down to person to person identifying that, you know, idea of shared values. I think for organizations, they need to really take stock of how are they just checking the box with their donors versus how are they investing in relationships? And I think in our industry, and we can look at this through the lens of like KPIs and annual goals. And if your KPIs and annual goals are based on revenue, you're prioritizing revenue, right? And that's how most executive directors or chief development officers keep their job because they hit a revenue goal. But there are things like, it's surprising to me how few organizations use like a three-year rolling average for revenue, because, which allows for a lot more donor centricity in, in the sense of, I don't need to fit a donor into my calendar because donors don't care about our calendar, by the way. So there's some really low hanging fruit things like three rolling averages or KPIs that really incentivize retention over revenue. But at, at the starting point, it's like organizations just need to sit back and take stock of how are we doing? If we really rethought what connection means to your organization and this idea of radical connection, and you kind of remove your biases about, yeah, we have a process where we check the box because this person who makes this size gift gets a, a postcard and this person gets a, a handwritten thing. Those are just processes, but I think the encouragement is to sit back. And this is how Brian and I actually met years and years ago when I was leading a nonprofit where we got to reimagine what donor relations meant. Like we knew what we were doing wasn't really working. And so we just threw it all out and decided to reinvent the idea of what could it mean if people really felt like they were partners with us, that they're going to stay with us for a long period of time. I think it starts there. I think everything Nathan said, I thousand percent agree with and, and I will lift it up to say if in order to do this tell me the question that you've asked us it is not just the purview of the development team we have to break down like the organization the nonprofit as a whole has to understand this mindset shift a be on board with it b break down silos we can't often what Nathan's describing yes a lot of it can come from the development team the fundraising teams but you need communications you need you know, branding marketing whatever teams you have the CFO needs to be here. She needs to be on board with this. I love Nathan's thought of the three-year rolling average. It liberates the development team to do things that are more hopefully sustainable, more sticky to build that type of engagement. We're talking versus 12 months, 12 months, 12 months kind of thing. This has to become an organizational-wide effort. That's one of the first things I would be doing if I was a chief development officer is sort of ringing the bell, to use the analogy from earlier, with my own organization. And don't stop, as we talked about earlier. Go to the board. This has to be an organizational wide effort for it to truly take hold. I think the single question, sorry, would be, what does it look like if our organization prioritizes relationships over revenue and start from there and let it cascade down? It'd be hard to disagree that that's not important, but much harder to do than it, than it sounds. So what would it take to prioritize relationships over revenue for your organization? And isn't that what we do on the programmatic sides more often than not, right? We're prioritizing our students patient care, kids and the mentoring, whatever our mission is. Right. Like, so it's really being a more authentic organization to naturally expand that to some of the philanthropy and marketing and finance and all the other administrative, so to speak, and the board. Yeah. yeah. You know, I can't help but think too, that if we were really valuing relationships over revenue, we likely would not see the high levels of turnover in fundraising staff as well. What are your thoughts on that? One of the early ahas in writing the book when we got to this point was exactly that, Tammy. Nathan, I think, was the one who said, if you go about philanthropy and fundraising this way, we will probably see that churn and burn of chief development officers, major gift officers, because guess what? To Nathan's point, when wealth is 10% accurate at predicting who will become a donor, and when that's where all the energies are spent, of course, you're going to have a burnout. When one out of 10 times you have success, 
by flipping the pyramid, by flipping the concept, you're putting yourself in a much, much more rewarding situation where there'll be wins that are, yes, revenue, but also relationship that I think will allow many of the development directors and frontline fundraisers to get into a position of really feeling the love, no pun intended, the love and the value of what they're bringing to the table versus the check the box number spreadsheet solely. The metric of success has to change. I mean, if the metric of success for most, this is my total soapbox from 20 years in the fundraising world is I have to hit an annual revenue goal to keep my job. It incentivizes a lot of bad behavior competitively and with each other internally, but also with donors in a way versus if my definition of success is how many donors did I have last year that stayed with me? What is a net increase in adding to that pool? So you always have to grow, but it's not about just hitting this annual revenue number that how I keep my job and three-year rolling averages or KPIs that prioritize retention. Retention is probably the biggest challenge in the sector. I mean, this is really why these, these donors have fallen off over this last 20 years. And the thing is no one's picked them up. They decided to opt out of these organizations and they haven't come back. And that's a challenge because the metrics and the KPIs were not incentivizing that keeping that relationship was the primary goal. It was just, well, they gave us a gift this year, so I forgot about them because they're not going to give me another gift right now, or they've got a pledge or whatever it might be. It's just like, I'm on to the next person, but that's a major shift. And again, I think fundraising people resonate with that very well. I think executive directors and CDOs can resonate with it. I think it has to go higher and the boards have to really understand like, what are the long-term implications of what we're doing today versus what it could be if we built an organization that prioritized that retention and those relationships? Amen. Amen. To your point too, I think that even just beyond revenue, we've tried to incorporate KPIs that are still activity-based. So there's a quantitative version of it, but not necessarily qualitative, like how many gratitude calls, right. how many face-to-face visits, how many proposals have you put in front of people. And so to your earlier point, it really does, in some cases, in too many cases, become that checkbox. Right. Like, yes, we had coffee. Did we have a meaningful conversation? Mm. Did we connect right. values, deepen their knowledge right. of impact or need? Maybe, maybe not. Right. So I really love the measurements of the three-year rolling average, the donor retention, even the gift value upgrades, not necessarily for the exclusive measure of did we get more money, but right. was their commitment deepened and reflected it, in their giving? It's a great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. So it really is time to reimagine philanthropy and fundraising's role in it. There's a lot at stake. We start the book out kind of this dystopian view of like, well, what if that free clinic wasn't there? What if the opera wasn't there? These are real-time things as well. I mean, this is happening in our world as well. Like so much that we take for granted in society is funded and provided through philanthropy. And there's high risk of this if we don't reimagine what philanthropy looks like and the metrics of success look like. I think it's pretty easy to envision future that we don't want for our kids or grandkids or we don't want for ourselves. And so there's a lot at stake. I mean, this is not just a philosophical kind of exercise. This is like real life today. It's pretty clear. But I think for Brian and I, we have to wake up and believe in the power of philanthropy and that philanthropy will prevail because otherwise why wake up? <laughs> it's too yeah. depressing. So with that, while it sometimes feels like it's a little negative at the end of the day, like we remain entirely optimistic because I think it's conversations like this, that people start to think about new ways to reimagine what best practices and philanthropy can look like. And that really is, I think the beauty of your book, The Generosity Crisis, is that yes, you do shine a bright light on the problems and the issues and the almost certain future if we don't reimagine donor relations and reimagine philanthropy and fundraising's role in it. And you provide really specific and tangible ways that we can change things. And to your point, it has to be wide across the organization and to the very tip top of the organization, starting with the board to every single employee, volunteer. And I believe even having this conversation with our supporters, right? To raise awareness. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And they can also have a role in helping make this big shift. To that point, 
the 49% of people who are supporting not-for-profits, this is a drumbeat I've heard. I heard it last night at an event I was at from two people who read the book, two different conversations, both of whom are active supporters of this organization that I was at. They said to me, I had no idea there were that many people not contributing. So to the point you had about having a conversation with your donor, I think it's important because that's the group we're preaching to the choir. And I don't think they realize how small the choir has got. Yeah, so powerful. All right. Are there any additional insights, parting wisdom, words of encouragement that you would like to share with our listeners? I'll go by simply trying to summarize my kind of thinking around the view of the book in this conversation, which is piggybacking on where Nathan was. There is a lot of reasons, even with this reality, to be optimistic, to have the positive view of things. And one of the main things for me is that what we're talking about is what not-for-profit always did, meaning right. relational and solving problems and common ground and doing things and working in areas that no one else would. So it's just a wake-up call. But I think I'm convinced that once the wake-up happens, our sector is going to respond and rally and come charging back in a way that the likes of which it has historically always done. So I think it's just a little bit of a wake-up, as you said, reframing it. Let's have the discussion, but then let's get on with doing it the right way because there's a lot at stake and the not-for-profit community is needed more than ever. Thank you. And since Brian took the relational side of this from a technical side, I think the nonprofit sector going back to has been very resistant to embrace modern technology. I was actually doing a podcast the other day where I said, what's the worst case scenario if nonprofits don't embrace AI? And it's not good because the nonprofit sector becomes obsolete, essentially, if we aren't willing to compete for that connection the decision will be made for us. And so I think my words of wisdom are you have to embrace the era that we live in, in this era of big data and technology. You cannot defy all the rules of business and succeed in the future. And so I, I see a lot of organizations just have fear and not want to move forward. But in this day and age, we know that our lunch will be eaten for us if we don't. And so I think that something that keeps me up at night is our organization really needs to double down and start to learn. It's not a fad. It's not going to happen someday in the future. It's already happened and we need to remain competitive. Yeah. Thank you both. You have shared so many wonderful insights and I truly do encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of The Generosity Crisis. It's an incredible book. You've got a website, which we're going to also include in the show notes in addition to a link to where you can purchase the book. And you've got a lot of great resources on that site to help facilitate conversations around giving and how to turn the tide. So I thank you for all of that. Gentlemen, at the end of each episode, I'd like to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide even more value for our listeners. Are you game? Let's do it. Brian all goes right. first. <laughs> Brian goes first. All right. So Brian, first question, and then Nathan will have you answer the same question. Okay. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Day one on the job, I was told people give to people, and I still believe it. Yeah. Timeless. I think I was going to answer the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? And it's okay to be shameless if you like. A, there's only one right answer to that question. No, no, I'll go a different way if that's right, Tammy. I read a book that actually my brother referred to me about a year and a half ago called The Trillion Dollar Coach. The subtitle is something like The Leadership Playbook from Silicon Valley's Bill Campbell. And it's a book about one of the people that had the biggest impact in Silicon Valley that many people don't even know his name. He's no longer living. But to me, the tenets of what I read, which was him being a true leader, I couldn't help but when we started writing our book and when we finished it, thinking, well, he had nothing but radical connections with the people that he worked with and he led. And so it's a phenomenal book, which I would encourage everybody. And I feel as if there's some takeaways that it kind of found their way into our book subconsciously. Well, out, outside of the generosity crisis, I read a lot of weird books on like AI. I'm reading a book right now called Power and Prediction, which really sums up where we are in society in terms of this kind of what they call in-between times of embracing modern technology in everyday life. I think my number one go-to book, though, has to be Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Start With Why from a fundraising lens is just, it's such a grounding, kind of centering book of like, like a book of hope because it gets us back down into the simplicity of like why we do what we do. 
And understanding our donors' whys and even our own whys is one of the first steps in radical connection, right? It's such a good book to reread. Every time I've read it, again, it, new things kind of come up depending on where I'm at in society of life. So I think I'd have to stick with that one. So good. All right. Excellent. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess? I think they're in no particular order, credibility, authenticity, and optimism. I would add competitive, but yeah, I, authenticity and, and openness. And I would say a good fundraiser has to be competitive. Nathan, say just a teeny bit more about competitive. I manage fundraisers for two decades and, and those that are competitive internally, not with their colleagues, are the ones that are driven. You have to have that feeling of like wanting to get up in the day and make your own destiny. And if you don't, you could get really trapped in just only the relational and not really move the needle for the organization. So I think that is that drive that like gets you up, wants to accomplish something and to do better every day. Yeah, thank you. So really competitive with yourself. Like the Disney way talks about being 1% better every day. Yes. Yeah. 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 Very good. What is your favorite fundraising tool or application? Well, I mean, the inventor side of me, I've been on the forefront of AI and fundraising for a long time. So, I mean, I'm extremely biased in this, but Donor Search AI, the tool that we have that measures, quantifies connection. I, and I'm obviously very biased, but it's so healthy for our sector. It really flips the pyramid. I'm happy to name others that I like, but I think our approach, the approach of using AI to measure connection is actually one of the things that we can help use to reverse the generosity crisis. And I know this might be a bizarre answer, but my answer to that question is the year and a half I had every week for one hour meeting with Nathan was my favorite, <laughs> is my favorite application and tool. I learned as you just heard him answer so much about what's possible to do this the right way, as he just said. And so I've become a bandwagon, massive fan of the use of AI and machine learning for our industry in a way that I had no idea when we, he and I sat down and started writing the book. Amazing. And that's quite an acknowledgement of you, Nathan. Well, thank you. So good. What's your favorite fundraising conference or just conference? That's a great question. Uh, attending a lot of them. I think they're all great. I'm thrilled that a lot of them are coming back. Nathan and I were just bouncing around Washington, D.C. last week, and it's great to see so many people back. Another twist, I feel like I'm a politician not answering your questions outright, Tammy, but what I really have enjoyed is this, meaning what I felt like when COVID hit, so many people like yourself, or I don't know when this started, but podcasts, I just feel, given my schedule and my four kids and everything else, when I can listen on my own time, I feel like what used to happen in nothing wrong with it, in isolated events, i.e. a conference, I feel like professional development is now happening in real time, when on demand, when you need it, when you want it. So with the combination of conferences coming back with great podcasts like this one yourself, I think we're in really good place as a sector. I think for me, the one conference that stood out, I think I attended 30 conferences last year. The one that stood out that was like a non-conference conference that was the NEO Summit, which is a nonprofit innovation optimization summit. And Next After, who puts that on, is works very hard to make it the non-conference conference. But I love the fact that they bring in speakers, not from the the nonprofit sector, but from the private sector. They have kind of the Medici effect of like, this is what the private sector is doing. They had a guy who started a pool cleaning business, but equated it back to fundraising. And it was just so refreshing and fresh to really stretch your mind a little bit to kind of think about different applications. So that one stood out for me. Love it. Love both of those answers. All right. Final question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising and generosity, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? For me, I think I wasted 20 years consulting through the lens of money, the relational, the connection aspect is everything. I would love nothing more than to go back and be a 23-year-old version of myself and start over the career knowing what I know now. Same. Yeah. It's what I used to do at the beginning of my career. And then a lot of our work became so transactional over the years, really because of the use of technology that reinforced transaction. Now, having insight and data, that would have been great 20 years ago because we had none. We had a Rolodex. But at the end of the day, really doubling down on that idea that more donors at any cost is not a winning strategy long-term to really double down on the individuals that are going to stay with you longer. So invest, invest in relationships. Invest in relationships. So good. I cannot thank you both enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you, Tammy. Yeah, it was my great to be here. Thanks, Tammy. Yeah, my pleasure. 
So if you want to learn more about the incredible Nathan Chappelle or Brian Crimmins, The Generosity Crisis, or their companies, Donor Search AI or Changing Our World, we've included links in today's show notes. You'll also find links to the other resources that we've talked about today. And if you are planning to attend the AFP International Conference in New Orleans in a few weeks, I know Brian and Nathan will be presenting, as am I, and I'm so glad I'm not presenting opposite of you. <laughs> I'm actually presenting the same day immediately following you. So really, everyone, please attend our sessions. Introduce yourselves. I know Nathan and Brian would love to meet you as much as I would. So come and find us. Say hello. And truly, thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraising Podcast. And keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tea of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.